SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. You know, Fred, I hear that eating too much red meat is bad for you. What a load of bug. My father ate it every day of his life. He lived to the ripe old age of 38. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast. And they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm Matt Bradley Chergy. I'm Thrasher. And uh, this time around, we're, we're kicking off a look at a new series with the, the live-action Flintstones film. So we're starting with the first in the series uh, that just simply titled The Flintstones. It's not called Flintstones the movie or anything like that. came out in 94, directed by Brian Levant, produced by Bruce Cohen, written by... There's like a million people that wrote this, but the credited writers are Thomas Parker, Jim Genoa, and Stephen E. D'Souza, based on the... Uh, cartoon The Flintstones, I mean The Honeymooners, I mean The Flintstones, by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera, <laughs> starring John Goodman, Rick Moranis, Elizabeth Perkins, Rosie O'Donnell, Kyle MacLachlan, Halle Berry, and Elizabeth Taylor, with music by David Newman, cinematography by the great Dean Cundey, uh, perhaps better known for doing cinematography for Back to the Future and stuff like that, um, edited by Kent Beta. This came out in 94, and I'm really surprised looking back, you know, how huge of a hit worldwide this was. On a budget of $46 million, which was expensive for the time, this made $341.6 million, according to Box Office Mojo. Yeah, and this this movie, and we're not even halfway through talking about the cast. Uh, Harvey Corman is in this, Jonathan Winters is in this, the B-52s, Jay Leno. Uh, oh, also, yeah. You know Sam Raimi is in this? I heard that, but I wasn't paying attention to catch him. Well, well, he's a he's uh, a body double for Kyle MacLachlan in a scene or two. Oh, that's interesting. Huh? That's that's a very uh, deep pull. Kyle MacLachlan. How does how does that happen? We're gonna make a movie about the Flintstones, and we're gonna have get this fresh off the set of Dune, Kyle MacLachlan. Twin Peaks. Yeah, I mean it. There's a lot about. Uh, we talked about this a bit offline, but, you know, kind of like the Scooby-Doo movies we covered uh, earlier in the year, um, the Flintstones, or that would have been last year, I guess, but, yeah, these Flintstone movies have a trouble with tone deciding what audience they're going for. And this has... Um, I don't understand why this is the storyline they went with. I, I did some research and found out... Uh, one of the the Flintstones movies were being worked on like as early as the uh, the 80s trying to oh, release yeah. as a live action film and, and the script they originally wanted to go with was a Grapes of Wrath meets the Flintstones <laughs> where something you know everyone's starving in bedrock or something and so the the Rubbles and the Flintstones have to get in a car together and go cross country and it was considered too uh, not funny enough and too serious it was supposed to have a lot of heart to it a lot of character growth, um, which is, you know, completely different from this film. I, I think that would have been interesting. Um, but, you know, they, they spent a lot of money trying to get the right script for it, and I, I also 
caught a vintage interview with John Goodman, and he said he worked with Steven Spielberg on the movie Always, and during the table read for Always, Spielberg looks at John Goodman and says, you're my Fred Flintstone, and Spielberg is an executive producer on this. <laughs> yeah, this this film is, is fascinating because they really did just make a two-hour-long episode of the Flintstones with a crooked real estate deal spun onto it. Yeah, and it and also it also a bit of a rat, you know, a bit of a uh, country mouse, city mouse kind of stuff going on. Um, and yet, I think the set design is really good. Like, there's some interesting things here. Well, no, I mean it's it, it's a it's a gorgeously designed, but that is if only because they lifted all the designs from the old cartoon and found ways to execute them in three dimensions, which which is amazing. And I think that's uh, so. This is the first time I had ever seen this movie completely from beginning to end. Oh, really? Wow. Well, yeah, yeah. It was the other day, just in preparation for this show, just because it it this movie came out in a time when I was really not interested in seeing it. So, like, I've caught bits and pieces of it on television. Um, this is the first time I ever really watched it, uh, and I came away really enjoying it. And if only because it seems like everyone who worked on this movie from from the top down uh, was kind of in love with the Flintstones and wanted to make the best possible version of this movie they could. I mean, everybody seems really, really into it. And just the fact that, like, deep cuts from the show's lore continually show up throughout this movie, I, it, it is a level of fidelity to the source material I would not expect from 1994. Yeah, um, a lot of that comes with the director, Brian Levant, who's a, a it could be Levan, I don't know. Um, he was a huge Flintstones fan, and but yeah, I mean, there's a lot of deep, uh, deep references. There's um, it, it's just nice to see a movie with so many practical sets. I think this, you know, might have been one of the last big budget movies with practical sets to this scale. I think you may you may be right and there's probably I am sure there's some matte painting in this film but oh, sure. it's probably not digital matte it's probably traditional matte painting and there certainly is CG for um, you know parts of Dino Adino uh, and, and stuff like that but and you know that's I'm glad you pointed out the CG on on Dino because in close-ups it's a it's a Henson puppet uh, but the rest yeah. of the time it's a CGI character and something that one of the reasons that I was not interested in seeing this is that in all the trailers and in all like the the ads for this movie, the Dino CGI looked awful. Uh, and even when I caught clips of this movie on TV, the Dino CGI looks awful. But watching this on a modern television in high definition, Dino doesn't look awful. I think, however, however hmm. they were compositing him into the scene, just looks hideous on an old-fashioned analog television. Yeah, it could be. You know, it, it is true. And a lot of times in trailers, they'll use um, early versions of special effects that aren't quite finished. Um, but yeah, it's it's really yeah, that, that's a good point. And I think you know this came out in '94. And um, let me look. I think Jurassic Park came out like just the year before or something. Yeah, that was um, that was a '93. I did check that. '93, right? And you even have a Jurassic Park joke in this, which is pretty quick, all things considered. Um, but, so, 
it, it's interesting after a year after you have a movie um, based on a, a best-selling book by Michael Crichton, Jurassic Park, with realistic dinosaurs, you have a movie that has some cartoon dinosaurs um, in the CG and <laughs> mixture it with puppets and, and stuff. And although it's stylized, it's not quite stylized enough. And it looks, I think, a bit scary compared to how Dino looked in the cartoon. I don't. There's something about the uh, the, the snout. I think that's kind of looks more like a, a duck or something. Well, they. I think the the designs. I, I think the designs for a lot of the the creatures in this are a lot less compromised. We, we've talked a lot about how in a lot of films there tends to be two competing design goals of making something look as realistic as possible or as enchanting as possible, and things come out hideous when you compromise between those two visions. I think they're making a good-faith effort of like, okay, let's just give everything the same like profile that it had in the animation, but find a way to make it look 3D and fleshy. And I think they're 75% successful. Like, the Dino puppet is so expressive. Like, I find the Dino yeah. puppet works in close-up. Um, but it is still it is still weird to have something fleshy have, like, those cartoon proportions. I think you have it nailed. It reminded me a bit of, you know, sometimes on Kotaku they post art um, from people's accounts. And, and this really talented artist, I don't have his name in front of me, did versions of, like, Homer Simpson and SpongeBob SquarePants but draw it if they were realistic with those proportions. Hmm. Or like Mario with those proportions, with like huge eyes and the big nose, and it's just terrifying. I think I've seen that Mario, yeah. Yeah, with the realistic um, facial hair. But yeah, back to the Flintstones, um, you mentioned, <laughs> I had seen this in the theater. And uh-huh. I, I was in Boy Scouts at the time, so I went with a, a friend of mine from Scouts, and, and we went to it. And even as a yeah, I would have been 12 years old, jeez. Um, as a 12-year-old, I thought, this is not a great movie, and this is a weird plot, and I'm getting turned on by Halle Berry. It, <laughs> you know, things I was not expecting. Um, and looking at the, the picture, I love this poster by Drew Sturzen. It's He's always great at capturing people's likenesses, and it's um, it does everything a poster like this needs to do for a family film. Well, it's got a lot of energy, and I just I love yeah. that bit where you were even the, they're in the Flintstones car from the front, but they're just lifted off the ground enough that it communicates a whole lot of high spirited energy. But you also get to see the cast's feet. And in, oh yeah, I didn't notice the feet, but in the background too, you see the the bedrock, which is good. Uh, I, I do remember at the time uh, McDonald's had a, a tie-in. Uh, and they're featured in the film as Rock Donalds as a sponsor, um, but they, they brought the McRib back for the Flintstones, which I think was fitting. <laughs> Too sweet barbecue sauce and uh, pickle and all. Okay, so uh, food food tangent. This this came because I watched this uh, film with my wife, and we uh, we got to talking, and it occurred to me. If I had to choose between food as it appears in a Studio Ghibli film or as it appears in any incarnation of the Flintstones, that would be a heartbreaking decision. I would go to Studio Ghibli. They do they make it look more realistic than than cartoony, but like you have like the steam coming off the buttons and but you're right. I mean the the you, you even get the a recreated live action version of the theme song uh, at the beginning 
you know, kind of bookending the film, which is just surreal to see them put that big slag of, slab of ribs on the car and the car tilts over. No, yeah, it's it's lovingly detailed, but one, and also, they also pack in a few extra gags, because I guess, like, if you're going to do a Flintstones movie, you might as well recreate one of the most iconic things from the Flintstones, which is its theme song, or, if you want to get technical, its second theme song. Yeah, that surprised me, because uh, when I saw repeats of this in syndication, they always tacked on the theme song everyone knows. But I love it when they when in that in that reproduction of the theme song when they're going to the drive-through. I love that the movie they're going to see is Tar Wars by Gorge Lucas. But then, oddly, in the sort of Austin Powers three style reveal at the end, it turns out the characters are watching this movie we've just seen about themselves. Oh yeah, well, well so I mean, how is that we, Tar Wars? We still, we still go into the screen during the intro. And... Yes. I would, although it would be fun to see exactly what Tar Wars would be um, with Darth Slater. Oh, we didn't do the jokes we were going to do about our names. Yeah, well, well, we'll we'll do that for the next episode. Okay, sounds. I'll put a pin in that. Um, but uh, yeah, before we talk about the movie itself, and we, we've sort of talked about it briefly so far, um, the. Uh, what, you know, I don't have much of a history watching the Flintstones cartoon, do you? Because I, I would catch bits they would play, I think, on Nick at Night or something. I, I do remember being excited to see the Flintstones meet the Jetsons, which I don't think was great. Um, and I, I was probably more of a Jetsons guy. I'm I'm a pretty big Flintstones fan. I, I've watched it. I've watched Flintstones extensively. Uh, I was like, when I was like five or six, it was like the first time I ever noticed recasting when they switched out uh, Mel Blanc for Dawes Butler for uh, for Barney for yeah. Barney Rubble. Um, so like, I've got I've got a lot of uh, got a lot of history with it. Uh, I still I still really enjoy it to this day in its various uh, incarnations. But like, the Flintstones was what I would come home and watch after school for most of my childhood, and uh, it's 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 an amazingly well written and, and an amazingly well designed series. Now it's not well animated, yeah. Um, yeah. But you don't go to Hanna Barbera for good animation. You go to Hanna Barbera to get to get entertaining animated sitcoms written by Borscht Belt writers. Right, and I love the the, the cheesiness of, of the jokes of, like, the shower is a mammoth standing above um, a shower curtain that shoots water out of his snout, and then after someone takes a shower, you know, he looks at the camera and goes, it's a living. Yeah, that's a running gag, which, which they don't do. They don't do the it's a living gag in this. No, the, the closest they come is there's a scene early on where there's a lunch break at the gravel pit, and uh, you know we see people getting food, and there's a vending machine, and there's a parrot in the vending machine that uses a bottle opener, and that was the perfect moment to have it's a living, but instead he just says, "Ah, oh, this job sucks," which is a lamer version of that gag. It's like they're trying to up. That's the one thing in this movie they tried to update for the ninety. And when he says this job sucks, it just reminds me of one of my uncles who who finds the phrase "it sucks" to be terribly, terribly offensive, which is a word my father, which is a phrase my father would toss around like it was water. Um, and so I don't. I, that's just a weird side tangent there. But um, yeah, it sucks was 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 a huge in the vernacular in the nineties. I mean, it's still used a lot today. But I think on the Simpsons, Bart would say it sucks, right? Oh. Among uh, among other things, yeah, well, he, my uh, shorts, blah blah blah. 
he said cowabunga once in uh, uh, ironically. It was on the T-shirts him saying cowabunga, wasn't it? Or don't have a cow uh, yeah, man? Or yeah. you no, know, the the cowabunga T-shirts. There's a story behind that. The cowabunga T-shirts were bootlegged. Oh yeah, that's why I had them when I lived in Argentina. That makes sense. <laughs> but yeah, they were huge. Um, even though the show was in its first season, anyway. With the Flintstones, uh, I'm going to give a quick overview of the plot. Then we'll discuss it in detail. Then we'll talk about the cast, and then discuss it in detail as we do. Fred Flintstone, of course, works for Slate and the Quarry. Well, and... as as Weird Al did teach us, uh, Fred Flintstone works at the gravel pit on top of a big dinosaur. He sits. Yes. Yabba Dabba Do Now. I believe that song's on the soundtrack, but I don't think it's in the movie. It's not in the movie, and that's like, it, it, like I'm shocked it didn't play over the credits. Yeah, or even as it would have been good for a montage as well. It was uh, off his Alapalooza album. Um, and, the, you know, they have to do a, a sort of, they're doing a special thing. They, if you take a test in, as a quarryman um, and, and you get a high enough score, you get to be an executive. It's sort of an executive uh, training program, and um, Barney switches his, I mean, this is a classic kind of cartoon setup, but Barney switches his results with Fred, Fred becomes an executive, zaniness ensues, and uh, Fred has to decide what's more valuable, his gazillions of dollars or his relationship with Barney Rubble. Um, that's sort of the high-level view of the plot. Um, I'm not talking about the cast. Um, I believe uh, Jack Hanna said John Goodman is the man born to play Fred Flintstone. No, he is. He absolutely yeah. is. If you took that cartoon character and brought him into the real world, you would get John Goodman. And yet, John Goodman doesn't do an imitation of Fred the whole way through. Sometimes he does. It depends on like what scene you're watching. Well, well like the more emotional he gets, the more he sounds like Fred Flintstone, by which I mean the more he sounds like Jackie Gleason. But yes. the rest of the time, he's just kind of doing a slightly gruffer version of his own voice. And when he's doing the Jackie Gleason's Jackie Gleason stuff, it's like, now listen, Bon. Bonnie. Bonnie. <laughs> hey, Fred. Uh, speaking of Barney, Rick Moranis played Barney Rubble. This is one of his last high-profile roles before he started his uh, retirement. Yeah. I mean, after this, he did some stuff like Honey, I Shrunk the Kids 3, or I think that's We Shrunk Ourselves or something. He did a movie yeah, called Big Bully. Co-written by yeah, uh, Joel Hodgson of MST3K fame. Oh, really? Huh. Um, he, he also, you know, after did did a few voiceovers for Disney in the Brother Bear movie, which I've never seen uh, for those movies. But otherwise, he's did a low profile. And I, I think we've touched on this before, but his, his wife was suffering from cancer, so he went to take care of her and raise his kids. And he's come out with a few, um, I'd say, like, comedy music albums. Oh, the Agoraphobic Cowboy. Yeah, and he did another one about, like, uh, I Love My Mother's Brisket or something like that um, <laughs> a few years after that. And then he he is going to make a on-camera appearance, which he hasn't done in quite some time, for... Um, oh, the Goldbergs? On, no, not the Goldbergs. Um, we, we can talk about that, though. But uh, Netflix is doing a SCTV kind of live reunion show. And oh, yeah. he, at the last second, he agreed to be a person for that. Um, and I'm not sure if it's a... I think it's a combination probably of clips of them doing bits live. Uh, but I, I, I'm pretty excited to see that. Um, but yeah, he also recently did a, 
uh, voice only of the space ball, reprising the space balls role as uh, Darth Helmet, even though he wouldn't do it for the terrible space balls cartoon. <laughs> Uh, Elizabeth Perkins is Wilma Flintstone. She, so, I, I, I think this movie is brilliantly cast. That being said, when I found out Catherine O'Hara was up for this part, I really wish Catherine O'Hara had gotten it. Who is Catherine O'Hara? Oh well, she she uh, was well, she was also uh, from uh, SCTV. She's in the Home Alone, first two Home Alone movies. Oh, I can see that. Mother. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Uh, and I, I feel like, I feel like if Catherine O'Hara had been cast in this role, they would have they would have beefed up the Wilma part just to give her some more room to flex her comedy muscles. Yeah, I, I mean they do keep the stuff from the show that Wilma comes from a rich family. Um, they play that card a lot more heavier in the, the the prequel sequel thing we'll talk about next week. Yeah, that's a deep cut. A lot of people forget that Wilma came from money, but. Um, you have Elizabeth Taylor is her mother, which is stunt casting. Um, that is mind blowing stunt casting. Yeah, especially since let me pull up her. I think that's one of it. One of the last movies she did because she was basically retired. She came out of reti- retirement to do like Always for Steven Spielberg, which is I think probably his worst movie. Um, have you seen that one? No, uh, although mo- most people consider uh, 1941 or Kingdom of the Sun to be his worst films. I've heard Kingdom of the Sun is really good. I've never with the it, young it, Christian Bale. It, I've never seen it. It but. is. It is very good. It's just forgotten for some reason. No one remembers that he made that movie. You know, in that after E.T., he was dabbling in historical stuff. I don't think he quite got it down like he would later with Schindler's List and uh, Private Ryan. But you know, he did. Um, he got a lot of heat for doing things like Color Purple. But and anyway, we're. That's a huge tangent. Um, Rosie O'Donnell is Betty Rubble. Rosie O'Donnell was huge at this point in the nineties. Um, she and again, like Fred Flintstone, she is like the cartoon character came to life, and she's good at doing the laugh. Oh yeah, they do that. If you take a shot every time the Wilma or Betty does her <laughs> laugh, you'll be dead by the time they end this film. <laughs> They really lean into that hard. Uh, now, Cliff Vandercave, who's the villain of the piece, played by Kyle MacLachlan of Twin Peaks and Dune fame, was this a character from the show? I don't think so. Uh, I, I, But it's like, he fits into the world of this movie so well, it feels like they found an obscure villain. When I was watching him, you know who I wish would have played the part? Who? Phil Hartman. Uh, Phil, Phil could have done the appropriate level of smarm, but yes. I really do feel like... Kyle does a better, like, he's really a go-go 80s executive type. I feel like Kyle fills those shoes a bit better. Hartman would have been, a, would I think, would have been a bit too corny. That being said, I am kind of shocked that Phil Hartman doesn't have a cameo here, because I'm sure he was a fan of the Flintstones. I bet you're and right. he could have also been a cartoon character come to life. Like, he could have been Joe Rockhead if they hadn't already cast, uh, oh, excuse me, if uh, they hadn't already cast Erwin uh, Keyes as Joe Rockhead. Or he could have been Mr. Slate at the end or something. Yeah, there's... You're right. And he, Phil Hartman, of course, did tons and tons of voiceover work in his career. But Kyle MacLachlan, he... Um, he's good at playing a bad guy that comes off as a good guy, but not too cheesy. Like, he, he really does a good performance here, which you don't always get in these uh, movies based off um, children's cartoons. Well, you know what's funny is that he's almost playing it straight. 
it's just I think you're right, enough yeah. that it would be like he's playing it as a lesser actor might or as a person with bad direction might. And I get that that's part I think that's part of what makes his performance so comedic. And I'm not sure why Comic Lachlan never became a big movie star. It seems like T V has been his big thing. And there there's nothing, you know, wrong with doing T V, but uh at, at, even in the nineties I think you still have that stigma of actors doing television. Yeah, I could see that. Uh, oh, you know, it's funny looking looking at Kyle McLaughlin in this movie. I'm kind of shocked he never played Superman. I could see that with the the chin, the nose, the profile. Yeah, that would have been good. I mean, he might he he might in fact be he. Uh, I think he would have been a better fit for that role than Nicolas Cage. Certainly, um, Halle Berry as Sharon Stone. Um, who apparently it was originally going to be played by Sharon Stone is like a meta joke, but there was a scheduling conflict. I don't believe the scheduling conflict excuse. I think she was trying to get out from the stigma of being known for Basic Instinct, even though that made her a superstar. Um, okay, maybe, but like, although Halle Berry is great in this, she's very good, and um, it's nice to have a person of color in this movie, because you don't get a whole lot of that. You, you certainly didn't get that on the cartoon. That is true, yep. Um, one thing I do want to touch on, to, to prep for this, I watched part of an episode of The Honeymooners on YouTube. Oh, yeah? And uh, I've never seen it before, and, you know, the big thing is Flintstones is to rip off of The Honeymooners, and wow, like, they're not kidding. Like, down <laughs> to the voice of Gleason and uh, Art Carney, um, even to how the laugh tracks are done, like the timing of the jokes. Well, there there is a difference, though, because the, the Honeymooners was filmed live. That is true. Um, famous, uh, at one point, Jackie Gleason was wanting to sue Hanna-Barbera for the Flintstones, and he was convinced not to by his friend saying, do you want to be known as, I'm sure you could win this case, Jackie, but do you want to be known as the man who took Fred Flintstone away from all the kids? Huh. But it's kind of funny, though, because that used to be a business plan in show business. It kind of like, it kind of went away in the 70s, but that used to be a business plan, is you take something popular and you just do your own recontextualized version of it. Well, Hanna-Barbera did that a lot. Oh, yeah. Not Talk, just for the based on, so Actually, watch the Day the Violence Died episode of Itchy and Scratchy when Carl Myers Jr. does his whole rant about cartoons and plagiarism. It's just a laundry list of Hanna-Barbera shows that lifted their characters and plot lines from old sitcoms. Oh, I, I, that's one of the, that's probably my favorite Simpsons episode. I'll have to watch that bit again. But yeah, it's uh, pretty crazy. Um, you get Pebbles and Bam Bam. They're not in the movie as much as I thought they'd be, which is fine. Well, you don't want to lean too heavily on on the kids, uh, and you don't want to, like the movie bogged down by like cute kid stuff. So I think I think it has just the right amount of pebbles and bam bam. Although this is so, I, as I said, I really enjoyed this movie. One of the handful of things that didn't work for me is that bam bam uh, the kid doesn't use his own voice. Uh, right, Elizabeth Daly dubs the voice of bam bam. And her, and she's pretty much doing the Tommy Pickles voice for Bam Bam, and it does not work. It's always really unnatural when they dub the yeah. line, and it's also it sounds like too strained. Like I feel like it needs to be sort of more boisterous and joyful, not just like a kid yelling. I feel Nancy Cartwright probably should have done uh, the Bam Bam voice. 
Oh, I kind of think the opposite. I think the Bam Bam should be more aggressive. I always took it as jarring whenever I heard it on the TV show. And he hmm. did a lot of property damage. Oh, yeah. they, they we, we Most of his property damage we only get in a quick montage early on in the film. Right. Um, the, the other two parts, then we'll go to talking about the film proper. You have <laughs> Jonathan Winters in a very small part, a cameo, really, as the grizzled man. He does. He doesn't get a a rock based name for some reason. He doesn't, and he. Um, it's more of a dramatic part. I was kind of surprised. There's not many jokes he has, and I thought you have Jonathan Winters use him, but it was nice to see him on screen. I'm I'm kind of surprised he's not playing Mr. Slade. Do you think he just wasn't available? I don't know. That would have been good though. Um, and Harvey Corbin, who voiced the Great Kazoo. Um, was in a lot of Mel Brooks movies and all sorts of stuff. Um, is Carolina the voice? Show. Yep, is the voice of the Dictabird, and who I think is great. It's just a great asshole performance, condescending. Oh, yeah, his his back and forth with Fred Flintstone is fantastic. So now let's get into the movie. After a partial recreation of the theme song, we get into. Um, they relate, you know, that this movie at the beginning sets up Fred and Barney's relationship, their friendship, really well. Oh, it's great! Yeah, they're uh, Fred's driving Fred and Barney are carpooling to work. They're listening to another deep cut. They're listening to uh, the Bedrock Twitch on the radio. <laughs> yes, which came from an episode where Fred became. Uh, oh, I forget what his alter ego was, but he became a rock star. I feel like it was just. I feel it was like rock rocker. It was. It was that level. <laughs> Yeah, um, but it's an Elvis kind of song, but to get this, to start off with that deep cut, like, you know, they're going to be making a lot of references to a lot of classic episodes, and uh, looking back, I was really surprised the Flintstones went on for five seasons, uh, over well over a hundred episodes, and uh, it is the first uh, American cartoon to play in primetime on television. Yeah, and, and beyond that, it also, it, it had... An endless stream of spin-offs. There was the Pebbles oh. and Bam Bam show, where Pebbles and Bam Bam were, were teenagers. teenagers. Yeah. There was Bedrock Cops, where Barney and Fred inexplicably are police officers, which has the smoo from Little Abner as a character on it for some reason. I never saw that one. Um, the Flintstones they... were involved in a lot of crazy things. There were some TV movies, such as The Man Called Flintstone. And... I think they actually got a theatrical release. Uh, you... It's really like tough that. to track down, though, uh, out of print. I rented it as a kid. I remember being bored by it. Um, well, it's such a, bo- a Bond pastiche that yeah. like, if you aren't already familiar with Bond, I don't know how you make sense of that. Although it has a great theme song, this Bond, a Bond-style theme song about Fred Flintstone. <laughs> Uh, but but they're having a heartfelt conversation because it turns out, and again, deep cut from the show, Betty... Uh, uh, Betty, uh, Barney and Betty can't have children so they want to adopt but they don't have enough money for the adoption fees so Fred has given them some of the money he and Wilma were saving to pay their adoption fees but you know he doesn't want Wilma to find out so they're both kind of swearing that they're going to keep the whole thing secret yeah it's a nice uh, nice moment and Fred takes money from his savings and gives it to the rebels so they can adopt. And at first he tells... It's a great... I think it's the one good Fred and Wilma scene in this movie. But he tells her what 
she mentions like they don't have anything in their savings, and he is trying well, to they, explain why. Well, their their garbage disposal, their pig garbage disposal, yes. is wearing down, and so she was going to buy a new one, but there was no money in the joint account. That's right. And yeah, and it starts building to like kind of a a, a a fight between the two. But then you know, Fred, as a last resort, tells the truth, and Wilma is very very moved by that. It's it's one of, it's one of those things where most of the time, if you just talked about the thing beforehand, there would be no problem. Right, it's always stupid things that blow up in your face with the marital arguments, I agree. Um, most of the time it starts as dumb things that just don't get taken care of at the time. Uh, I, as far as the, the puppet work in this, I love the trash dispenser. Like, that's such an expressive design of this warthog thing. Well, we, all, and we also just get a good chain of gags because, you know, he goes under the sink and he, like, pulls a fork out of its mouth. But then he notices his watch is gone. A watch which was laid in earlier in the scene. And he's like, okay, buddy, cough it up. And, you know, it, it like, the watch flies out of the sink. <laughs> and later when they get money and replace it with the younger unit, like, it's that one's, like... Um, it's skinnier. It's skinnier. It kind of moves like a puppy. Like, it, it it's just, yeah, a lot of... I found a lot of comfort in that character design for whatever reason. Uh, I think that one was well done. Um, and so now, you know, Barney, uh, you, you get a, a, another reference to the show. It's not a deep cut by any means, but Fred and Barney are part of the Water Buffalo Society. Ah, uh, yes, the loyal order of water buffaloes. And uh, is that sort of like call they do right from the show? Uh, yes, but like it's it didn't happen that often. Like cause okay, the, the, uh, them being Lodge brothers was a huge, huge part of the show uh, because like you know the, the show was made at a time when things like the Elks Club were huge and like the Friars Club and and other like organizations like that. So it it was something that very much was a part of people's lives back then, although not not so much now. Those kinds of of, of social clubs and societies are in a bit of a decline. Um, but yeah, they had all these like weird secret greetings and things, and so like typically whenever they would like have water buffaloes meet, they'd make some silly noise, and that was just one of them. But again, we get some more gags uh, done because it's a league bowling night, and it's the water buffaloes team, and there's like other there's like other societies <laughs> that are there. And like they they shot for shot remake Fred's little twinkle toes bowling thing, yeah. And uh, the use of original sound effects from the show I think helps a lot with some of the gags. Yeah, it's it's like they don't they don't hide the fact that this is based on a cartoon. And that was actually another thing that I was really touched by is that Mel Blanc made all the Dino noises in the show, and Mel Blanc had been dead for about. Uh, four years by the time this movie uh, was released, but, but you know, still a beloved figure in animation. Uh, and so, what they did is rather than bring in Frank Welker to do the voice of Dino, which they certainly could have, they lifted uh, Mel Blanc's audio uh, audio from the Flintstones, and so that's still Mel Blanc as Dino in this movie. Hmm. Yeah. It, um. Yeah, I'm looking at Mel Blanc, and the last role he did uh, was a movie that came out after he died, reprising his role as Cosmo Spacely on the Jetsons movie. Oh, yes. Um, so, you were, were going around, and uh, Barney gives a, at the lodge meeting, gives a, reads a poem out loud, and they do a lot of cutaways to Fred Flintstone crying, which I think is a bit cheesy, but it's a nice, you know, heartfelt speech, and it's set 
lays down pipe for the plot that Barney's going to look for a way to help his friend Fred. Oh, so again, one other thing that it, I don't find too successful. So, like, I like I like how kind of like they go overboard with Fred's tears in this. But there's this one really disturbing shot where it shows Fred's feet, and there's like a puddle of tears. But instead of using like water that ripples, I think it's caro syrup, and like a drop of caro syrup yeah. falls down there. So, it, because of the viscosity of caro syrup, it's like he's leaking semen. <laughs> Like, it is such a disturbing shot, I do not know why they thought that was going to show up better. I'm glad he said leaky semen, because that reminds me of uh, the, the guys over at the podcast Laser Time uh, posted, uh, Chris Antista, one of the hosts, he posted a video on YouTube. He does a great imitation of Fred and Barney, and he did a, a comedic bit where they're both um, sucking each other off. Oh my god. Extremely awkward. It's only 30 seconds. It's, a, it's as long as it needs to be, no pun intended. Okay, Fred. <laughs> now listen here, Bob. You're going to uh, whip it out and stick it between my insides. See? Yeah. It's, so it's, so it's one of those things where they take something normal and explain it in a ridiculously complicated way that's true to the characters? I, I think so. It, it's it's a loving <laughs> gag. A again, loving tribute to no animated blowjobs. Yeah. I, I will, I'll have to check that out. So I think that's actually another reason for my affection for the Flintstones is Barney Rubble was the first impression that I ever figured out how to do well. Yeah, I found Barney easy to do as well. Um, now you mentioned a, a bit I want to come back to. You, you said uh, Barney's voice changed a bit on the show and that's something you noticed? Uh, yeah, because it was originally it was like originally Mel Blank, and then he was replaced in like the second or third season by Dawes Butler, who is the voice that I think most people are familiar with. That that's why, because in the early seasons his voice has gone up here, Fred, but then later it's sort of like this, and that's what they stay with. <laughs> yeah, in the early seasons he's sounding more directly like um, Art Carney from the Honeymooners. Mm, yeah, and. Uh, so they go and they take this, uh, they're, at, they're taking this executive training test and Comic Clockman comes down to the quarry, which you imagine isn't something he does a whole lot, and so the, everyone knows it's a big deal, and Fred filling out the test and not knowing what to do reminds me of how I used to take a Scantron test back in school when I wasn't prepared, just filling out things randomly, and uh, it's a nice gesture for Barney to do, but as we can see, it backfires. Well, I, this is something that, that I that I can't quite figure out. So, you know, Cliff Vandercave, uh, Cliff Vandercave, because he's, he's got this whole elaborate plan where he's going to embezzle, you know, millions of clams from the company, but he needs a fall guy, and that this whole test is about finding the fall guy. So the thing I'm trying to figure out, is this test something that the company was going to do anyway, and Cliff is just going to pin the embezzlement on the new guy, or... Or do, do the aptitude results matter? Like, is he looking for someone who would make the perfect stooge, which is why Barney's test has the better score? I think the second one. You're right. They don't explain that part as much. But I do. I do. I do like this. This test taking the number two chisel and you know, like if Cliff Vandercave while proctoring the test is reading this. Uh, reading this Hot Rod magazine. <laughs> Actually, that's something I was very charmed by. Whenever we see, like, a newspaper or a picture or anything, um, it's always chiseled in stone, but the pictures of people chiseled in stone look like the cartoon characters. 
Right, and we'll see stuff later where it's like Fred Flintstone gets a promotion, and it's a looks like the cartoon Fred. So I I agree that was a good. Um, <laughs> but I like that Fred Flintstone is thought to be so incompetent that him getting a promotion is front page news. <laughs> yeah, it's maybe a bit in a, a slow news week, and uh, it, I just love all the scenes of Fred at home, you know, reading the paper on his comfy couch, and uh, with his dirty feet up in the air. His dirty feet up in the air, you know. That's. Uh, I know newspapers are still around, but you know now it'd more be someone on the iPad or something. <laughs> but yeah, and, and so you know, Fred Fred gets accepted into the executive placement program, and I gotta say, the slate and the slate and quarry company office building is amazingly designed. Those rough hewn marble walls, and it's full of all these like go go eighties office indicators. There's an abstract sculpture of a triceratops out front that looks like the abstract sculpture that's in front of every damn bank that had yeah. an office building built in the seventies or eighties. Um, there's all of this Andy Warhol art, <laughs> Stone Age Andy Warhol art on the walls of all the offices to provide that layer of faux sophistication. That's true, and just the, uh, even though they're sitting, like, on, have stone tables and stuff, there's a neat marbling quality to it. Like, it looks, it looks high-end, but still Flintstones, which is a really tough thing to do. Um, and they really get a lot of mileage out of the Venetian blinds, uh, that are in all the offices. And the Dick DeBird in his office, we mentioned earlier, but he becomes important to the plot, but it's, uh... At the time, I thought the Dicta Bird was pretty cool, and I, I still like it. It's well, it's a great puppet. It's a great puppet. It's a it's a great voice, and it's also important to the plot. It's not just one gag like I, you think it would be when they introduce him. Um, and this movie has has a trope that Back to the Future Two also had, where you have a character who um, is is wealthy, is under pressure, and signs papers without reading them. Oh yeah, because uh, again, it's all part of the of Cliff Vandercave's embezzlement scheme. Uh, Fred is like, was it the vice president in charge of procurement? And so you know, his job is signing is signing requisition forms, and all the forms he's being given are all fake requisition forms. Uh, as we find out later, they're requisition forms and and invoices from phony contractors. So the money's just being sent to Cliff Vandercave. Right, and later he signs documents that he's told will give uh, the workers um, more vacation, but it's actually their firing papers, and he's just... Yeah, it's like a prolonged vacation, which which is actually something I kind of like, because when Fred like first finds out he's going to be an executive, he's like, you know what I'm going to do, Bonnie? First, I'm going to make sure all the boys get a little extra vacation time. Then maybe a dental plan with full foot coverage, or, or yeah, a health plan with full foot coverage. Yeah, it's and a I, joke. I, and I like that he goes into it with high ideals, but I also like that that trying to live up to those ideas motivates some of his incompetent actions. But then I also like that at the climax of the movie, that all comes back again. Like he does manage to he does manage to get all the quarry workers two months pay, or two weeks paid vacation. And what um, did I think this movie could have used a bit more is, is a bit more Barney Rubble because he does fall out of the story a lot in the middle. Yeah, because because uh, one of the first because the first difficult thing Fred has to do, and it is kind of a test for Cliff Vandercave just to make sure, sure that he'll go on with everything, is that he has to fire Barney Rubble, 
And unfortunately, he gets that news the same day that Barney throws a surprise party to thank him for, you know, helping them adopt Bam Bam. And he finds out he's fired at the party. And I do like that that doesn't destroy their friendship, that they're still trying to look out for each other. But we do have a running gag from that point on where every time we see Barney, he's working a different job. But I, I could have done with more of that. I could have done with yeah. some like, fun Barney rubble gags. like that. In all honesty, what they probably should have done is any time they're outside of the home or outside of the quarry, Barney should be in the background doing a different job. Sure. I mean, you get more Betty than Barney, really, um, with her relationship with Wilma. And she gets, um, you know, they get, they get jealous, but they also get progressively treated worse the more money Fred gets, which I think is a good touch. Yeah, at one point they have to start renting out their homes. So they move in with the Flintstones, who you'd think they wouldn't crowd each other out because one of the th- things is Fred starts getting these big, big bonuses and he starts spending lavishly because, you know, because Vander Cave is like, you should start living like a big shot. And they get like a huge expansion put on their house. So <laughs> Yeah, it's really uh, smart. I guess it's one of those familiarity breeds contempt. Although one thing I love is as we see we see the shot of the house getting expanded upon and getting nicer and nicer, one of the additions it gets is a satellite dish. So I love that the Flintstones have a space program uh, and have a satellite in orbit that they can get TV on. I never thought of that, but yeah, that would that would be a, a movie in itself, right? Yeah, I I, la- I laughed very hard at that just thinking about a caveman uh, space program. I just like the, uh, you get the good shot of the outside of the house in a long shot, and it looks just like the cartoon, and, and, and even the way they added that second floor as the expansion, it still, it makes sense, it looks nice, it's a good, clean design, they didn't, you know, make something that architecturally looked off in that universe. No, it all, it all fits. It all fits. Um... We get, you know, part of, we mentioned uh, earlier some things about the tone, and I think this plot is way too complicated for what this movie should have. All the embezzling yeah. stuff. Kids kids don't want to watch that. I don't think adults especially want to watch that unless they're seeing, like, Wall Street or something. So that that's something that if, if we don't do it, then Laser Time should. They need to do, they, they need to do an episode all about kids' movies that inexplicably have crooked real estate deal subplots. I bet they've done that on their show once, but yeah, that, it's a, so many. Oh, yeah. And, and, and in a lot of ways, I think you could do this same exact movie where it is just Fred becoming a big shot, and it's all about, it's just a study of their relationship. Uh, like, you don't really need the crooked real estate deal, even though it does give us Cliff Vandercave and Sharon Stone, who I do really like in this movie. Um, but, like, everything with the crooked real estate deal, it's just there to raise the stakes in a very artificial way. Or I even think you could even go simpler than that. You could have the whole movie about Fred raising the money to give Barney so he can adopt Bam Bam. Huh? Yeah, I, I I could see that. And like, what? Well, like, would the adoption be like the climax of the film? The adoption would be the climax, but it would be he's huh. he's trying to do all these gigs on the side, trying to hide it from Wilma. She's wondering why he's so tired, why he's out late at night. Um, again, that'd be a different movie, but it, I don't know. I I kind of I would still like you know Fred's rags to riches and rags again arc. I I would st- I would preserve that. Okay. I would just make it much make the stakes much more personal. Although uh, with 
they, they hit, because even then, that's a common Flintstones episode plot, is, like, Fred gets money. Uh, yeah. But there there's a thing that I kind of, they hit every Flintstones story beat except Fred getting hit on the head by a bowling ball and getting amnesia. True. <laughs> Although, I guess you could make that a movie uh, all on its own. <laughs> but, so, at the height of it, so eventually, you know, the, the situation with the Rubbles gets so strained that... Uh, Barney and Wilma, they, they move out. They just pack all their possessions of the car and they go to live in the wasteland outside of Bedrock. And there's this scene that made me laugh so hard where they're on this, like, plateau and Barney's trying to make fire and he can't make fire and he stands up and says, Well, it's finally happened. I've become my father. And I could <laughs> not stop laughing. It, yeah, it's... Uh... There's something wonderfully existential and mundane about about Barney reconciling with the fact that he's become his own father. And Barney, and Rick Moranis' performance as Barney is so, very much like the straight man of the movie. I mean, he has jokes, but you you uh, you feel for him in that moment. And it's, uh, yeah, it, I just like that it's played straight. It's not what you're expecting, but it's a joke uh, that, that does work. And, well, it's a joke only he could deliver. Yeah, that too. Like, Rick Moranis has the right pathos for, for that particular line. It also makes me wonder, wow, what what was he, what family situation did he come out of? Sure. Yeah, I mean, what, 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 what would that be like? Uh, I don't how, know, because yeah. I'm wondering if it's, or maybe it's like his father's just a failure who couldn't even make fire. Or then again, maybe, maybe, Barney, maybe Barney was raised in the wasteland. Hey, Barney, I'm your pops. I'm, uh, it's really cold tonight, it's the blizzard, and, uh, can, can you make a fire? I can't do it. <laughs> okay, Dad, I'll give it a shot. I'm the early Bonnie Rubble. Uh, but, <laughs> but uh, it, it is, it is nice, and, like, I really, I, I just love the way it progresses. So there's another, there's a big set piece in this movie where this is before, this is actually when the final falling out happens, where, uh, Fred, uh, it takes Wilma. It takes a uh, Wilma, Betty, and he's invited Barney to this fancy, uh, fancy uh, restaurant, the Cavern on the Green, to uh, to sort a big celebratory dinner. Only to find out that that Barney is working as a busboy uh, at that restaurant. But we get a whole meal is made out of the scene because performing live at the restaurant are the BC Fifty Twos. And it's the B-52s as cave people doing the Bedrock Twitch. Not only that, they also have another track where they're doing a cover of the Flintstones theme song. Oh, yeah. But we get a whole choreographed dance number. It's really nice. And also, did you catch that uh, the cavern on the green is Stonehenge? I did not. I did catch that cavern on the... Green is a, a pun of a famous restaurant in New York City. Oh, the Tavern on the Green. The Tavern yes. on the Green, yeah. I caught that, but not that it looks like Stonehenge, which is also pretty good. Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fun gag. It's a fun, understated gag. But I think, I look at that, and I think the B-52s probably are the perfect band for this, because they have the same sort of kitschy 1960s feel that the Flintstones has. I mean, if you were going to have Rudolph Yankovic do his uh, bedrock... Uh, Saw in the movie. Why not have it in this scene where he's the opening act to the B-52s? Yeah, and, 
Yeah, actually, yeah, they could be celebrating Fred's success. And now, a little song for the man we like to call the boss. Yeah. And we act, actually, maybe that's what you do. You do it like the uh, the song, the big song from Citizen Kane. <laughs> <laughs> but it's Weird Al singing the bedrock anthem, that, and yeah. everyone's kind of shocked. Boy, that guy's pretty weird. That's right. Uh, and uh, oh, oh, I'm, I'm uh, shuffling here through the sequel cast uh, two archives. I found another uh, audio cassette of the uh, the original sequel cast from the BBC. Oh, really? Yeah, you want to listen to a little clip of it? Oh, certainly. And uh, this one, it is the host, Reginald Dwight, and um, whom is he talking to? Uh, I believe uh, I believe uh, Reginald is talking to uh, Shecky Spiel, uh, Spielrock. Very good, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's right. Um, you have a good memory. I couldn't, the ink had faded on these tapes, so uh, <laughs> we're going to go put it on uh, right here. Hello, and welcome to Sequentially Speaking. My name is Nigel, and with me today is American director, producer, Artur, Shecky Spielrock. Hello, Shecky. Hello, I'm Shecky Spielrock. How you doing? I have to say, uh, you have some, uh, some, some nice things here. I might take this coffee cup home. Do you got any more I can look at? I mean, steal. That is my coffee cup full of my tea. We call them teacups here. Teacups, huh? If I have too many T's, I have to pee, you know. Feeling um, coming on right now. I think I'll just let it dribble down my leg. Uh, we got to do this interview, so let's keep it's, going. It's, I can see that it's pooling between your feet like Cairo syrup. It's pooling between my feet like Cairo uh, syrup, and, uh, you know, if my feet ain't sticky, it's not a good day. Uh, no, Shecky, I may call you Shecky, may I? Uh, yeah. Yeah, Shecky, Boombecky, uh, yeah, anything, sure. May I call you Shex? Uh, as long as you're not talking about my Shex drive. Uh, well, we're gonna call you Shecky, baby. <coughs> Go right ahead. <coughs> Get some. All right. Now, uh, Shecky, baby. <coughs> now, you're you're infamous for producing your own Flintstones film, despite the fact that you never acquired the rights to any of the characters or their circumstances, uh, and were in fact kicked off the set of 1994's The Flintstones. That's right, this one was called uh, The Stone Flints, and uh, they are a uh, modern Stone Age family, not unlike the Flintstones, and to get uh, inspiration and also props, I went to the set of Brian Levant's film The Flintstones. I see, oh, that would explain why the entirety of your film took place uh, in the dark. That's right, it was an experimental piece also to save money. We didn't want costumes. Uh, I stole a few sets and I thought, if, hmm, if I use a lot of backlighting, it'd look a bit like uh, the new Han Solo movie that won't come out for 30 years, where you can't see anything on screen most of the time. It's all in shadows. So you get some hints of rocks, you get that Diaz in the past of the stone flints, and it's about, it's nothing but a... Uh, Instead of Fred Flintstone, we have a Fudd Stoneflint. And instead of Wilma, we have a Willima. So pr pretty subtle changes there. And it's about them having an argument. And the, it ends with them getting a divorce. It's a cliffhanger. You don't know what's going to happen to their kid, Poodles. 
Oh, yes. And looking things over, it was very infamous for despite being shockingly a relatively down-to-earth relationship drama, because of your desire to save money on costumings, the entire <coughs> cast is naked from beginning to end. Yes, and, uh, you know, they didn't need to be because it's all in the darkness, as I said. But you could, um, I noticed the way the shadow plays off of uh, a dangling penis or a sagging boob can uh, often be quite symbolic for my storyline. And uh, I also told the actors I'd give them an extra $25 a day. What I didn't tell them is I'd cancel the check before they got to the bank. <laughs> yes, well, as we all know, uh, sagging peni are in fact synonymous with Shecky Spielrock. Oh, yes. Uh, much like Alfred Hitchcock, I uh, I slipped my member into a film in a scene. Would you, yes, would you put that away, please? Oh, oh little, little uh, Betty Ford just made an appearance. Sorry. Oh, got to slip her back in there. All right. So, uh, but I have to say, you know, it, it likes to breathe sometimes, so I'd really like it to, to, to stay out and uh, get some of that fine British hair. Oh, oh, oh my goodness. It, it went in my teacup. Jeez. Oh, Oh no, Shecky's penis has escaped. <coughs> Call security! <coughs> no, it's third degree burns getting larger for some reason. Oh, the teacup knocked all over the, the no, table. No, it's like a gremlin. You're not supposed to get it wet. <sighs> now sprinting us two penile. Uh, uh, back, back to the Flintstones. I can avoid oh, no, the pain. One of them is voiced by Tony Randall. I'm Spartacus. Oh, that doesn't sound like Tony Randall at all. You're a terrible imitator. Penis Dude, too. This is a horrible. Your penis is a horrible impressionist. Absolutely. <laughs> Speaking of horrible impressionist, uh, people would think with the Stone Flints it sounded like the Flintstones cartoon, and uh, and you'd be wrong because I hire actors that would work naked for next to no money. Uh, they couldn't really act, so I dubbed all the lines with my dialogue in my natural velvety speaking voice. And would you be willing to do a reading uh, from from your script to give the audience yes. a sense of, of how you played multiple roles? Well, that, that's right. So it's um, Fred, uh, or Fudd, I'm sorry, the husband and wife, and uh, Fudd and Willem, right? And uh, for, for Fudd's voice, I, I do a little, uh, it sounds just like this. And for Wilma's voice, uh, I go up a little like this. So, uh, you know, slight, slight, uh, a little bit of an affectation. So here we go. Are you mocking my voice? No, I'm not. So, all right, here we go. Oh, here's a dramatic reading from the scene really quick, and then uh, the tape's about to run out, so. All right, uh, here you are. Now, Willemar, I told you to take out the trash. Why won't you do it? Well, I don't know. It's stinky. It's a man's job. Now, I didn't marry a woman to have a stinky trash in the kitchen. God damn it. And then he breaks a bottle, and uh, there's a fight scene in the nude, in the dark. Which I imagine must be very difficult to choreograph. Oh, the, uh, people choreograph those things? No. Well, we just said, go at it. Uh, don't die, because if you get stabbed, there ain't no medics anywhere. In fact, we shot all our scenes in the dark in a spare room from the bedrock set from the Flintstones movie while they were filming the real movie. We had to use a lot of towels to cover the windows so you couldn't hear Rick Moranis complaining about how his coffee was too spicy. Well, that would explain why all the Ramada logos were visible through the, the windows in every single scene of your film. 
Yeah, in fact, uh, the cast and crew was starving. I had to scrape up a few. Uh, of course, I'm not going to spend money on food for them because why not? Uh, they're at a job. I don't have to pay for their meals. But uh, I, I got some uh, some stale McRibs from the trash last week to, to give them. So, uh, but yeah, so so that that's my movie, Stoneflits. Uh, did did you give it? A, well, no, you gave it a good review on your program. I I think this interview speaks for itself. It certainly does. Uh, look forward to me and my uh, shadow penis cameos in uh, future films to come. Uh, I got a, you know, my wife's got a boy coming on the way. I think I'm going to call him Shecky Spielboig. Get him an edge in the business. Uh, your name certainly does have a reputation attached. Man, I mean, that, that tape was a fascinating find. It was. I'm glad. I'm glad. You know, we go through those archives from time to time. Great history gold. History gold. Um, so I mean, the Flintstones. We've talked about this movie in, in a great deal, but I think it's time we, we go towards the end of the picture because we get actually some action going on that is kind of clumsy, but I like the the cartoony nature of it as well. Yeah, so, get... so there's a there's a boardroom scene about halfway through, which. Uh, which is great. Joseph, or sorry, William Hanna, one of the creators of the Flintstones, is an executive in that scene. Uh, yeah. It's the Stan Lee cameo of its day. Joseph Barbera drives a Flintstones car in another scene. But Cliff Vandercave is revealing like the next phase for the company and its automation. They found this way to this autom this fancy machine to make automated modular housing. Uh, and Fred's the only person who points out that it's going to put a lot of people in the quarry out of work. Um, and he also breaks the model, but yeah, at the end when uh, when Fred after Fred fires like gets everyone in the plant or everyone at the quarry fired and almost gets lynched with Barney in a weirdly dark scene. Yeah, um, they find out that Cliff Vanderhave has kidnapped Pebbles and Bam Bam. Now I don't know how he kidnapped the world's strongest baby, but he did somehow. And they are strapped to the conveyor belt for the machine, or they get shredded up uh, by the machine that carves the stone blocks. It actually is a neat kind of Rube Goldberg device, but that's the climax of the film, is Fred and Barney dealing with this machine, trying to get the kids rescued, while Cliff Vandercave sneers from a hilltop. And you get a wonderfully corny joke where, where at the end, this uh, you know mixture falls on Vandercave, and he's covered in this hard material, and Slate comes out, and says, "Oh, this this material Flintstone that 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 um, that you that's over this guy. It's it's fantastic. I'm going to name it after my daughter Concretia." Which that means that there's somebody in the world, the Concretia slate. So there's somebody who isn't given a rock name. They're named after something that hasn't been invented yet. So that would be like somebody in like the 1800s naming their kid Laser Beam, right? It's, but um, uh, but yeah, it is neat that Fred Flintstone accidentally invents concrete, and it's that's going to be what ends the Stone Age. Not bronze, but you know you, you can't always you, you can't always win. But it's sort of grim because like it's not like they chip Kyle McLaughlin out of the concrete. Nope. He's dead. Yeah, he is very very dead. But yeah, yeah and so so Fred, you know. Fred is going to get another promotion uh, and is going to take, you know, take Cliff Vandercave's, I think take Cliff Vandercave's job. Uh, but Fred's like, you know what? All that money and power made me a jerk. You know, I'll just settle for a two weeks paid vacation. So he gets everybody their paid vacation, but there's a part of me I'm kind of unsatisfied with that ending 
because I feel like Fred did just invent concrete, even if it was by accident. I really would like to see him justly rewarded for that. But two, wouldn't since the movie began with Fred helping Barney, wouldn't it be better if it ended with Fred helping Barney by getting Barney hired to the executive position? Right. Yes, absolutely. Like, I feel like that should have been the end. Like, it... Because that, that that would that would more like to have Barney in a better position at the end of the movie than at the beginning, but instead he's just back to square one. I for a movie, I don't like the way it ends going back to square one. Do you like how it ends with the same closing credit sequence as the cartoon? I I like that as well. I I love that they reproduce it in exacting detail. The one thing that I don't like, the one thing that that kind of holds back the reproductions of the opening and closing credits is that a lot of the things that they are expertly timed in the animation are really difficult to get expertly timed in live action um so every now and then there's a weird like pause in the melody of the song to give like everyone time to get into their proper place hmm it's most noticeable when fred punches out but yeah. I really like it, and then it, and then you know we go into the credits. We get the the BC fifty two's cover the Flintstones theme song, and then we also get an expository rap. I did not stay for the rap. Yeah, there's like a rap about the Flintstones, uh, which if we can find, might be a fun thing to play yep. uh, over the end of uh, this episode. But if you stick to the very end of the credits, there is a stinger. Oh, because like at the beginning, so as I said, the movie opens with Steven Spielrock presents, which. Shouldn't it be Steven Shaleberg? Yes, that would be better. And then instead of the Universal Pictures logo, we get like a shot of Pan- Earth with Pangea and its Universal Pictures. And so it ends with another like 1960s signifier. <laughs> it ends with a title card of all these uh, cars at a drive-in and it says, When in Holly Rock, visit scenic Universal Pictures. Oh. Which yeah. is something you used to get at the end of movies. Like I, I was... I, I kind of like that. Uh, again, prefiguring the Marvel movies, we get a little bit of a post-credit stinger. Hmm. Um. Turns out, I'm doing some more research as we're wrapping up this uh, review of the film. The McRib combo at McDonald's at the time was called the Grand Poobah Meal. Oh yeah, named after the head of the Loyal Order of Water Buffaloes. That's right. That's a good cut. Um. So yeah, sequel yes or sequel no. Uh, I give Flintstones sequel yes. You know, I don't, I don't think the plot is entirely successful, but the, the set design and the costumes and the puppetry, I really enjoyed, and uh, John Goodman is a great Fred Flintstone. I'm going to give it a sequel yes too. This is probably the best possible version of a Flintstones movie, and it is so shockingly true to the source material, so it works both as a piece of nostalgia but also just as a good old-fashioned comedy, there are some jokes and some gags that just don't get old. And they're all preserved here in this film. Right, and the the humor, I think, is respectful to the original series. It's not, you know, it's not one of those movies based on a TV show where the whole thing's a goof on the TV show. Yeah, there's no irony here, which I'm glad they avoided. There's only, there's only, and again, there's only two jokes that seem out of place. One is the bird saying this job sucks rather than it's a living. But at 42 minutes into the film, there is a poo joke. 
like they've avoided dinosaur poo jokes this whole thing but there's a scene where a pterodactyl flies over bedrock and a car gets destroyed by a giant stream of uh, bird feces or pterodactyl feces hmm and like that movie like on the one hand it's so over the top I feel like I should find it funny because it's such an extreme version of that joke but I don't I don't I don't laugh it just it doesn't hit it feels like the movie does not shouldn't have to stop for that to happen interesting yeah um so let's see what would you do for your pitch a sequel so my my pitch a sequel as I said the only traditional sitcom or Flintstone story that isn't in here is Fred getting hit on the head by a bowling ball and thinking he's a different character. So that's all my sequel's gonna be. Is It's mm. gonna begin where Fred Flintstone is at a huge like bowl, it's a huge bowling tournament. Like Fred Flintstone is taking the Water Buffaloes bowling team to the big leagues, like to the point where like they could win several thousand clams. It'll be great for the organization and of course Fred and Barney, both of their families could use that money, so there's a lot riding on on them turning into these bowling stars. But uh, towards the end of the first act, Fred gets hit on the head by a bowling ball, forgets how to bowl, and he thinks he's a rock star. And so it becomes a weird kind of almost collection of short films where Fred Flintstone keeps ending up living these different lives while Fred, while Barney, Wilma, and Betty keep trying to track him down and save him from his concussions. Um, but every and he keeps finding success in these other lives as a rock star, a race car driver, a mobster, a superhero, what have you. In fact, we might actually have him be Captain Caveman uh, at some point. Uh, and we'll try to re- and we'll use the Mel Blanc Captain Caveman yell because no one else can do it, frankly. Um, but it finally ends with him getting hit on on the head, possibly by Wilma, possibly with a frying pan, one last time, and that's what gives him his memories back at the last second. And he uh, and he helps them win the bowling tournament, and they get their money, and everyone's just generally happy. And we also use his different lives while he has amnesia to do Flintstone parodies of like existing pop culture trends. So we can make fun of some of the Marvel and DC movies when he thinks he's Captain Caveman. When he's a, ca- a race car driver, we can make fun of the Fast and the Furious. Although I guess this would be the Fast and the Ferris. Uh, ferris rocks being the type of rock you can smelt iron out of. Mm. And so that'll be fun. There'll be some resonance. And also, we will give Dwayne, we will give Dwayne the Rock, the Rock, the Rock Johnstone uh, a cameo as Dwayne the Rock, the Rock, the Rock Johnstone. And would he say uh, one of his catchphrases? Um, I think I would kind of want it to be played straight. I think I think that's what will happen is Fred will, one of his Amnesia's episodes is he'll think he's a wrestler, and that'll be the wrestler that he goes up against in the ring. I see. And I guess his signature move will be the People's L Bone, because you got to have some sort of other caveman indicator right I will um, you know my pitch a sequel I would want to uh, concentrate on uh, base it on an episode from late in the series run called a haunted house is not a home where to receive an, an inheritance Fred has to spend the night in his uncle's spooky mansion Oh, I like where this is going. 
And so you would do a lot of, um, and it turns out this mansion has prehistoric versions, uh, sort of parodies of the universal monsters. Not the Ghastlies from the Flintstones? <laughs> no, not the Ghastlies from the Flintstones. That would make sense. Except the last line of the film would be uh, Barney going, Hey, Fred, isn't this a bit Ghastlies? He says, Bond, isn't it Ghastly? Then it would end on that terrible line of dialogue. So it would be, you know, kind of more Scooby-Doo style gags. Huh. Okay. And it would be called, um, and it would be released in March because of budget overruns and poor test screening results. So, so not at all near Halloween? Nope. And it would be called, um, Flintstones, a Flintstones haunting. Not, not a haunting in Bedrock or uh, no. the, the, the exorcism of Emily Stone. <laughs> no, no, the exorcism of Emily Rose Quartz. No. And it, it's... It's not going to be called The Shining Rock. The Exhale Cyst. <laughs> the... Uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show. A, a, nightmare, oh, a nightmare on Stone Street. Uh, you you want another tangent? Sure. So around the time this movie came out, John Goodman hosted SNL, and okay. they did a sketch where he came out in his Fred Flintstone costume, sure, in like a a set that looked like the Flintstones kitchen, and it, he was explaining to the audience the Flintstones naming convention, so that they could understand the the movie, and he go and and it's it's great hearing him like make up all these Flintstone names for things, but he goes on this great tear, and in the Flint world of the Flintstones, Rocky is called Rocky 2. Rocky 2 is called Rocky 3. Rocky 3 is called Rocky 4. Rocky 4 <laughs> is called Rocky 5. And Rocky 5 is called the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Uh. <laughs> it's, it's a, and he just has this like smug smile the entire sketch, which is just so, so perfectly endearing. Yeah, he apparently was a big fan of the show. I I believe that. I mean, everyone in this movie seems to have been. Also, interesting tangent, uh, Danny DeVito at one point was considered for both Barney and Fred. Actually, I want to see Danny DeVito do a one-man show where he plays everyone in the Flintstones. Yeah. Um, I could... He turned down the offer for Barney because he said he's too gruff. Yeah, I could see that. So there you go. Um, hey, did you notice that when uh, Barney is uh, driving the ice cream truck, the ice cream truck's jingle is the Flint, or, or sorry, is the Jetsons theme? I did. That was nice. That was fun. That was a good bit. I also um, like that people are asking for what he went to the lynching because he heard there was a lot of noise and thought he could make a lot of sales of his <laughs> ice. There was a crowd. And I even like that as, as they're putting the noose around his neck, this person comes by, yeah, I got a cherry. Uh, here you go. I don't got change for a 20. <laughs> that was such a wonderful sad sack scene. Definitely. Um, speaking of sad sack, what you watching? Oh, hey. So um, so since we're in sort of a Hanna-Barbera tangent, uh, I had, had a, uh, I saw two, two Hanna-Barbera related things. Um, 
I saw one of the recent Scooby-Doo movies, the Scooby-Doo uh, WWE. Oh, okay. I don't even remember. There's like, there's so many of these now. There's a Flintstones one now. I don't remember the title. But I also watched the Scooby-Doo Supernatural crossover. Oh, I heard about that. And uh, which, so, yeah, yeah, which is pretty good. So you know, Supernatural being the long-running uh, show about two brothers who who uh, protect people from monsters. But like, they, there's this. They get this big screen TV, and while watching an episode of Scooby Doo, get sucked into the TV. And I love that. Like, one of them is a huge fan of Scooby Doo. The other one thinks it's dumb. But they get trapped in a real Scooby Doo episode. Hmm. Uh, the one, the one where Scooby, to get an inheritance, has to spend the night in a haunted house, and it plays out beat for beat, just like the episode, until characters start straight up getting murdered. Okay, and and so it and it's it's like really fun. Like they have fun. They play around with the fact that it's well animated, and they get the the Scooby Doo voice cast is in it. Um, they they do everything you'd want them to do uh, in a Scooby Doo uh, in this episode of Scooby Doo. But there is one great scene where there is a scene where they explain to the Scooby Doo characters that they are cartoon characters. And Daphne like has this existential panic where she's like, wait a minute, ghosts are real? That means, does that mean souls are real? Does that mean hell is real? Oh my god, are we all going to go to hell when we die? Mm. It's just, it's not a line I ever expected to hear in a loving tribute to Scooby-Doo. How is the wrestling crossover? It's all, it, it's okay, and I'll, honestly, I would rather talk about the, the supernatural crossover. Like, yeah. the, the, the wrestling one, like, it's... The Scooby Doo stuff it does it does right. If you're not into like professional wrestling, I'm sure that stuff will fall very flat for you. But overall, it was entertaining. The one I'm sort of interested in is there is a Flintstones WWE crossover. Yeah, it's like it's like Bedrock Beatdown or Stone Age uh, Smackdown. Yeah. Oh yeah, M- maybe that <laughs> that can be a special episode. Maybe the God, the cover art has a poor likeness of Fred. It's that bad airbrushed cover art that, for some re- for some reason, still shows up on the covers for animated DVDs, and I do not know why. And the perspective is a little off. Yeah, the the hands look bad. Yeah, it's not not a great cover. Although the stuff down below with Barney being cornered by Undertaker and someone else. Um, one bit of trivia that's interesting is that so they've done two Scooby Doo WWE crossovers so far. Yep. And the second one, Curse of the Speed Demon, was that the one you saw? Oh, no, I saw the first one. The first one. And so the the second one, um, it originally was going to have Hulk Hogan in one of the main roles, but then shortly afterwards, his... Um, that tape uh, came sex, out? Sex tape, or, or... Yeah, I think the sex tape came out, and so uh, they immediately removed him from the project. It's probably probably be- for, for the better, all things considered. I think so. Um, Something that I've been watching, it's a documentary that's taken me a year to get through the whole thing, not because I didn't like it, I just kept on forgetting I watched part of it. Like, I would watch it, and then I'd have to uh, help with dinner, or I'd watch it, and then the dog would have an accident, or something would, would go on. So, But it, it's highly recommended. It's Floyd Norman in Animated Life. Hmm. It is uh, currently streaming on Netflix, and it's about, uh, in the United States, and it is about Floyd Norman, who was one of the first... Uh, black animators at Disney and he also later became a writer and um, he started work for Disney way back on Sleeping Beauty oh cool 
So that it, it, overall, that may be my favorite Disney film. Um, I might agree. I like Sleeping Beauty. I like uh, I like I like Hunchback of Notre Dame, even though it has some big problems. Um, but yeah, Sleeping Beauty is, I think, certainly one of the greats. Uh, also, there was um, they mentioned in his career, which uh, I knew this guy a little bit or, or was familiar with him because. In uh, the early 2000s, uh, when Mike I when uh, Michael Eisner was hosting, why did I call him Mike Eisner? That doesn't make sense. Uh, when, <laughs> you know, on Eisner, a first name basis with him. Yeah, Eisner brought back the wonderful world of Disney for network TV, which I thought was pretty cool. cool. And in one of those, uh, they did a documentary on Walt Disney, and Floyd Norman is on screen as someone that worked with Disney, basically refuting all the Walt Disney anti-Semite stories. Oh yeah. So I, I knew him from that, and he they touch on that in this a little bit. They get get all through his life. They do a good job covering it in detail. Also his divorce. Um, at one point, he left Disney to form his own uh, studio with other um, African Americans, and they did such iconic animation as the uh, the intro to Soul Train. Oh wow. That is some amazing animation. And they also did some, which I'd like to track down, some good um, like histor educational, historical, short animated pieces on uh, important people of color throughout history. Um, eventually the company went under and he had to go back to Disney and do some other stuff. But it, uh... And he apparently has also written some books that are these sort of one-panel cartoons kind of criticizing the corporate side of Disney, some huh. of which got him in trouble with the company. <coughs> One of which um, I really enjoyed that they show it's <coughs> Michael Eisner and Steve Jobs beating each other up with bags of money. <laughs> uh, I'm just imagining Burns and Smithers in their money fight scene. Yeah, yeah, it's that sort of thing. That's. Uh... Pretty, they also have some good interviews with one of his friends, Mad Magazine artist Sergio Argonas. Oh, wow. Who I didn't realize was still alive, but... Well, yeah, he's, he's still very prolific. He still does stuff for Mad. He still does Drew the Wanderer. He shows up in a lot of interesting places. Isn't it true that, speaking of Mad Magazine, didn't it relaunch recently? Uh, yes, uh, I think I think the new issue one is out. But yeah, their their offices their offices moved <coughs> from New York to Los Angeles, uh, mm. and so as part of that move, and this is I think after Grant Morrison became the lead editor, they decided to do kind of a restructuring, and so they're starting over from uh, uh, issue number one. They are trying to get back to the magazine's roots. They're trying to be sort of more reflective of what it was like in the fifties and sixties at its creative height. Um, that being said, though, the run-up to the new Mad Magazine number one has all been, like, a parody of uh, gritty, stylistic reboots of things. Huh. They did this whole fake ad campaign about how Alfred E. Newman was being rebranded as Al Newman, a hip millennial executive. <laughs> <laughs> it was really funny. It was a great. It was great to see all of their fake updates about what was going to be in the new Mad Magazine. I have to pick that up. Um, and the other thing that's coming back to print that I'm excited for is Fangoria. Oh yeah! And they're also going to be doing novels under a Fangoria Presents label, which makes sense. 
Yeah, I heard they were going to start doing horror fiction. What I didn't realize is they had a, a film label in the 90s called Fangoria Films. Huh, what kind of... St- I think I, I knew about that, but I'm not sure I've ever seen anything they released. It's a lot of cheapies, and then later they did a compilation of short films, which um, is sort of what I would expect from that sort of label. But, uh, but yeah, no, Fangoria is a, a really important uh, magazine to the horror genre, even, you know, to, to fans of... Uh, makeup and, uh, and puppetry and, and that sort of stuff too um, they covered sort of that gamut uh, and they were the I don't know if they were late, is it related to Starlog or I feel like it might have been at one point, might have had the same publisher at one point maybe, same publisher, certainly the same distributor, yeah and even like the, the look and feel of the magazine but I mean what I love about the old Fangoria and Starlog issues is um, yeah Starlog is bankrupt, that's too bad, um is the the actors and the directors and people they talked to were a lot more candid, and they weren't afraid to show to do stories about making of a movie when stuff was in trouble. Everything wasn't polished and saying like, "Oh, everyone was a joy to work with." Blah blah blah. It also, you know, before the internet, especially with all the the pictures and stuff, it was the only way to see behind the scenes. You didn't have special features. You didn't have home video really, or if you did, that you know they didn't have documentaries or anything on them. So it was a great way to learn about the craft, but also um, just good coverage of reviews. And uh, sometimes the movie directors would write responses or guest edit an issue to articles. Um, Harlan Ellison probably did some things for Starlog. I'm sure he did. At some point, probably some reviews uh but yeah those but i'm excited about um fangoria coming back the first issue of that should launch in by october is what they're hoping um you have to hit that october date don't you think if you're fangoria and you're coming back oh you yeah i I, that would be the ideal time (laughs) (laughs) otherwise i just delayed a full year really but um yeah so cool 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 really neat stuff um oh one one last thing. I oh. ran across an excellent episode of a podcast I think you and our listeners might enjoy. And it is the... Um, I'm going to look up the name of the podcast so I have it right. It's called Shout Takes. Hmm. And what it is is Shout Factory is a company that does really great special edition... Uh, well, usually special versions of uh, Blu-rays of usually cult films, wouldn't you say? I would say. And uh, this is, they, they take some of the interviews they've done for their special features and just air the whole interview as a podcast. Hmm. And this was one of um, Mel Brooks was doing. <sighs> Mel Brooks, and uh, he's with um, Brooks Films Development Executive Randy Auerbach as well. And they discuss... Um, it's specifically for the DVD for um, Doctor and the Devils, which sounds fascinating. I've never heard of it, but under Mel Brooks's Brooks Films labels, he made a lot of dramas because um, he didn't want to have it say in the credits produced by Mel Brooks because people would think it was a comedy. Uh, famously, Elephant Man was done under that label, but Doctor and the Devils is uh, based on a true story of... Um, you probably know the story, Thrasher of the, the two doctors in Victorian England, or the, these two guys in Victorian England that would murder people and then sell the bodies to medical schools. 
Oh, yeah, because at the, at the time, it was very difficult to get cadavers to do research on. So there, there, was, a, there was a trade in, uh, in corpses of, of a suspicious origin. But the Brooks Films version, Doctor and the Devils, stars Jonathan Price in, um, oh, who was the James Bond that was in just two movies? Timothy, uh, oh, uh, not Timothy Dalton. Uh, yeah, isn't it Dalton? I think it's Dalton. Dalton? Yeah. That's right, oh. Timothy Dalton. Oh, yeah, yeah, it was Timothy Dalton. Um, so it looks really cool, but he also talks about all the other stuff that Brooks Films made, including Solar Babies. <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. And he talks about a lawn in development. He's trying to get a box set out of the Brooks Films movies that aren't uh, his own comedies. So that includes things like Doctor and the Devil and Elephant Man. And it's difficult to get the special features produced, but also to get these movies released under these different studios to agree to a box set. Oh, yeah. And every once in a while you see that. I think the best example I've seen was a a 2005, I think, release of Oliver Stone, and it was all of his movies until, like, the late 90s or something. Hmm. With, like, work from six different studios. Really unusual, but that's always cool when you can do that. I would still, I would still love a definitive and comprehensive Marx Brothers box set. There's, I do have a complete Marx Brothers movie collection, but it is spread across a few different sets. That's true. MGM was the old stuff, and then, uh, oh, I don't know if it's Universal. Is it Universal? I, I think probably Universal. Um, yeah, yeah, because Fox is more like gangster movies. A lot of tangents. Well, cool, cool. Uh, next, <laughs> next week on. Sequel Cast 2, we'll be talking about the sequel, actually it's a prequel, to the Flintstones, uh, Viva Rock Vegas. Oh, man. It was a flop, so we didn't get any more. Uh, but it it has its own set of problems, and will be fun to talk about. <laughs> um, do you have anything you want to pimp? Uh, uh, actually, uh, yes, I do. Let me just make sure I've got the uh, right uh, URL. Okay, so uh, I mentioned I mentioned a few episodes ago that I was a contributor to Wrath and Glory, the uh, upcoming Warhammer Forty Thousand tabletop RPG. That's right. If you go to the Ulysses North America website, they're the publishers of the game. Uh, it's Ulysses dash US dot com. Although it's a German spelling of Ulysses, so it's U L I S S E S. They are now accepting pre-orders for the game. So you can pre-order this game I worked on. Uh, they have two different pre-order packages. One's like a basic package. One's a package where you get a lot of accessories. You get uh, you get uh, combat complication cards, perils of the warp cards, uh, player tokens. I think there's a map pack as well. Great. Uh, but definitely, definitely check that out. If you want to read this awesome game that I had a small hand in, go to ulysses-us.com and pre-order Wrath and Glory. No, I'm really proud of you, man. That's great. You got to work on a higher profile uh, project. It was really fun too. Oh, and actually, if you're going to be at the Origins Game Fair, I will be there as well as uh, Ross Watson, the developer of the game, and some of the other contributing authors are going to be at that convention. So, if you want to meet us, talk to us, play in some Wrath and Glory demos, get a get a first hand experience with the game, that is a good place to do it. Have you ever thought of trying to pitch them a, a novel idea in that universe? Or 
Well, Ulysses is not publishing novels. They're only publishing... I see, just the uh, game the, books. Okay. Yeah, uh, to, if, if, I, if I was to pitch a novel, uh, I would pitch it to Black Library, that is Games Workshop's right. fiction division. Yep. Um, they do, but they only accept... They, there's only a very narrow period each year when they accept pitches, and unfortunately, uh, my schedule has never lined up. Although that might be cool to do. Yeah, yeah, I think you know, I know, you know a lot about that, that setting, and it could be fun. Um, I have been working on a, a project I, I hinted at, and I can't, I don't want to go into more details until I actually sign a contract about it. But it would be a long-form nonfiction piece for a small publisher, uh, for small press, um, and uh, with the personal stuff I've had going on, it's taken longer than I thought it would. But it's about uh, movies from a particular director, and I have the movies at home on the shelf. So I've done the acquisition part. And cool. and uh, the tricky thing I'm finding with it, and I'm sure the final book will be great, is in the past for Battleship Pretension and other outlets, I had written movie reviews that were only like, you know, 500 words, like two pages, right? And in this mm -hmm. one, like each movie will get probably, I'm thinking about like 10 pages worth of stuff. So um, adjusting the writing to fill those needs is an interesting challenge, but it's fun, it's good. Um, and I've been reading some other uh, books for um, sort of inspiration and kind of get ideas about how other people did it. And uh, let me tell you, there's a lot of really, um, there's good, but there's also like really bad amateurish, uh, you know, nonfiction books about film self-published on right. Amazon. And which is why I decided to go with small press, because I don't, you know, to have another editor I think is always good. And he's done the Amazon thing before, so it's one less thing to worry about. So, that's too much shout for our listeners. I think they're falling asleep. But, um, <laughs> anyway, yeah, next week, Flintstones, Viva Rock Vegas. Follow me on Twitter, at M-A-T-W-B-T. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Internet Mayor. And you can also listen to us on Stitcher. I keep on forgetting to mention that. Stitcher, Stitcher, Stitcher. Um, so for a sequel cast two, uh, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Sane. Are we going to do that uh, live read? Shit, yes. I always forget it every show. <laughs> but I like that we move it towards the end. I think that's a good place for it. Um, do um. So we've got Cliff Vandercave and Fred Flintstone in the scene. Uh, which one would you like to do? Cliff, is that all right? Oh, absolutely. Because I think you he'd do a better block. Fred. Okay. Um, Thank you. So, th so, so to give you the context, this is the scene where Cliff is having Fred um, fire Barney Rubble just after just getting the executive position. Uh, so Cliff and Fred are in Fred's office. I want you to fire Bernard Rubble. Done! Wait, fire Barney? Why? Well, he scored the lowest in the company aptitude test. He's an imbecile. The company can't afford to have dead weight like him on the payroll. But Mr. Vandercave, he's got a new kid, a mortgage. I'm his best friend. I can't. Look, Fred, if you don't fire him, I will, and then I'll fire you. Yeah, just, man, such a dick in that scene. And just to get this out of my system, Barney, my pebbles! <laughs> okay, Fred. They also, make a great, they also make a great suppository. I, I'm... So, uh, interesting that you went in the suppository direction and not in the direction of doing Barney rapping about Fruity Pebbles. Oh, oh, I think, let's see if I can still remember that. Um, 
With bedrock purple, orange, yellow, lime, and red. When I got that fruity taste, I gotta get Fred. To get the fruity taste, he's gotta trick Fred. Oh, trick, yeah. Fruity Rudy. <laughs> yeah. That's a wrap. That's a wrap. Uh, it's almost as bad as the uh, the live-action Ninja Turtles rap rap about Christmas wrapping. <laughs> <laughs>